book that we've been uh, looking at over past weeks, the prophecy of Joel, and uh, chapter 2. In the Church Bible, that's page 1052. Joel chapter 2 and at verse 1. Blow the trumpet in Zion and sound an alarm in my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming, for it is at hand, a day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and thick darkness, like the morning clouds spread over the mountains. A people come, great and strong, the like of whom has never been, nor will there ever be any such after them, even for many successive generations. And if you go down to verse 10, verse 10, the earth quakes before them, the heavens tremble, the sun and the moon grow dark, and the stars diminish their brightness. The Lord gives voice before his army, for his camp is very great, for strong is the one who executes his word, For the day of the Lord is great and very terrible. Who can endure it? Now therefore, says the Lord, turn to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. So rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful slow to anger and of great kindness, and he relents from doing harm. Who knows if he will turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Blow the trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, call a sacred assembly, gather the people, Sanctify the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children and nursing babes. Let the bridegroom go out from his chamber and the bride from her dressing room. Let the priests who minister to the Lord weep between the porch and the altar. Let them say, spare your people, O Lord, and do not give your heritage to reproach that the nations should rule over them. Why should they say among the peoples, where is their God? And uh, especially with uh, the Lord's help, let's look at verse 1, which opens, Blow the trumpet in Zion and sound an alarm in my holy mountain. And that in connection with verse 15 blow the trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, call a sacred assembly. So at verse 1, blow the trumpet in Zion and sound an alarm in my holy mountain. Verse 15, blow the trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast and call 
a sacred assembly. And uh, particularly, uh, verse 1 of chapter 2, blow the trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm in my holy mountain. Now, over the past uh, few weeks, we've seen the national disaster that came upon the land of Judah in the form of a succession of plagues of locusts. And of course, this disaster affected the nation and it affected the church too. Israel as a church and Israel as a nation are not exactly the same thing, although there is an overlap and it's important sometimes to distinguish. But certainly this plague affected the nation and it affected the church. And uh, I hope too that we've seen the comparison uh, between the, the national disaster that came upon the land of Judah and the international disaster uh, that has come upon ourselves, and particularly, as we saw last time, upon the nations of the West. And uh, I hope we've seen at least enough to realize that this pandemic is not simply an event. It's not simply an event over which God is sovereign either, because every event is an event over which God is sovereign, but it is actually a visitation. It is a visitation from God. In other words, it is God's voice. He is speaking to the nations, particularly the nations of the West, and he has sent this affliction to show his displeasure to the nations. In other words, it is God's chastisement upon the nations that have experienced it. It's not as severe a chastisement as it could be. It's not as severe a chastisement as it might yet be, although we think it is all going away. Perhaps, of course, it could return. Perhaps it could return in some other form. Perhaps it may be the consequences of it that are a greater chastisement than the thing itself. But in any case, it is the displeasure of God. Now, if it is, uh, we need to be careful to respond to it properly. You'll remember last time that uh, I mentioned the sons of Issachar or the children of Issachar in uh, the book of Chronicles. We're told that they were marked out by having a special understanding of the times, the times in which they lived. In other words, they understood the significance of what people were doing and what God was doing. And in connection with that, we're told that they had an understanding of the times to know what Israel ought to do. So you'll notice that uh, recognizing the times relates to what you do in the times. There's, there's no prize simply for recognizing them unless you respond to them properly. And after all, that's really what wisdom is in the Bible. The Bible speaks about wisdom. It's distinguished from understanding as such because it's a step further than understanding. It's one thing to understand. It's another thing to know what to do. And wisdom will know how to act. It will know how to respond. So in other words, very simply, even if, even if you all recognize, if all of us recognize the voice of God in this, and even if we recognize that it's a chastisement, we still need to know what we are to do. 
And when it comes to asking what we're to do, it's important that we ask God what we are to do, not ourselves. Two reasons for that. The first is very obvious. Just as he helped us to understand the meaning of the affliction, so he alone shows us the way out of it. The Bible says that it is not in man who walks to guide his own steps. We walk, we live, we respond, but it is not in us who live and walk and respond to actually guide our own steps. The prayer must go up as it was sung. Show me thy ways, O Lord. Show me thy ways, O Lord. Thy paths, even the paths out of a pandemic, a profitable, a spiritually profitable path out of the pandemic. Show me, teach me, for you are the God that sends salvation to me on a day-by-day basis, the ability to work out my salvation with fear and trembling. So show me thy ways, teach me thy ways. So we need to take counsel of God and... um, To confront the situation in our own strength is to be really committing the same sin that brought the pandemic on us in the first place. What brought it upon us is doing our own thing, irrespective of God, and trying to sort the situation out in the same way is just adding insult to injury. I think there's a glaring instance of this in in the reply that I got when I wrote on behalf of the church, when I wrote to the first minister, of Scotland, and a reply came from her office. Essentially, I mean, the letter said a few things, but essentially what it asked the Prime Minister to do was to to consider her place as Prime Minister and to call the nation to prayer, to ask for God's help. That's all in, in this particular situation. The response from the Prime Minister's office contained this. This was the main thrust of it that they would consider when we come through this pandemic, how best to mark that. But for now, our need is to give all our energy to controlling it. Now, it's so revealing that. I mean, maybe at one level you would expect nothing else. I, I understand that. I agree with that. But how revealing that is that when we come through the pandemic, we will consider how to mark it. In other words, we may do something vaguely religious, but for now, the need is to give our energy to controlling it. Is that not missing the point in a very spectacular way? The point is that we need God's help to control it, never mind to mark it when it is over. So we can't consult ourselves as to how to get out of it. The the second reason for seeking God's counsel is more subtle and uh, more important for ourselves as Christians. The reason is that it's never enough to be chastised. It's never enough even to know that you are being chastised. You need to profit from that chastisement. And uh, I want to draw attention to this because it's actually a mistake that I think uh, we often make. Uh, Perhaps even the way in which we sometimes preach from it. 
leads people to uh, take a, a wrong understanding of these matters. But in other words, you may think that chastisement always works, but chastisement doesn't always work. It doesn't always work in the life of the Christian. Now you say, well, surely the whole point of chastisement is that it works. Well, yes, that is the point in administering a chastisement, but it doesn't guarantee that it will work. Um, the purpose of a rod or, or, or an affliction of this kind is to soften us. It's to make us submissive. It's to recognize who is in authority and our need to be responsive to that authority. It's a reminder too, uh, the rod's a reminder that God will punish eventually those who will not accept correction. But in itself, the rod achieves nothing. Even if you consider the, the smack on a child, which is the same thing as the rod in the scripture, in itself, it achieves nothing. There must be teaching along with it. But even the teaching doesn't guarantee that the child will be chastised. In Hebrews, what the writer says, or what the Holy Spirit says, is this, that no, he says, no chastening seems to be joyful for the present. But afterwards, it yields the peaceable fruit of holiness to those who are exercised by it. It doesn't yield the peaceable fruit of holiness automatically, but to those who are exercised by it. So you could be chastised for five years and not be exercised by it and learn nothing at all from it. It's a very solemn consideration, and there are certainly um, passages in Scripture that tell us that individuals were chastised for a length of time, and that nations were chastised for a length of time. In uh, Isaiah's opening chapter, when God refers to them essentially being black and blue, he asks the point, he asks, what is the point of striking you anymore? In other words, I have struck you several times, but, but there's been no response. So that's a chastisement that bore no fruit. And in fact, um, if we look at somebody's life or even our own life, the, the only reason we can be sure we are being chastised as opposed to being punished. Now, I'm here speaking about chastisement as, as what comes to sons or nations that God is delivering. The only reason we can recognize a chastisement as opposed to a punishment is the fact that it's doing us some good. If what I'm experiencing is not exercising me and turning me towards God in new faith and new repentance, what evidence do I have for believing that it's only a chastisement and not a punishment? So you may say, well, chastisement is a mark of sonship. Yes, but only if you're exercised by it. After all, there's a big difference between a nation that is destroyed by God's chastisement and a nation that is corrected and reformed by it. So we've got to take our situation to God. It's not enough to recognize that God sent it or that God is angry and sending it. What must I do? 
That's the response. And it belongs to us all, irrespective of who we are, Christians or non-Christians, to say, what must I do? So we let the Bible instruct us. Just as we turn to the Word of God to help us identify the times, so we turn to the Word of God to help us respond to the times. And it makes sense, seeing as we diagnose our situation best in the prophecy of Joel, just to stay there. And to look at the two trumpets that are being blown by the priest in chapter 2. Blow the trumpet in Zion to sound an alarm, verse 1. And in verse 15, blow the trumpet in Zion to consecrate a fast and to call a sacred assembly. Now, these trumpets are being blown by the priests. And when you think of the priests uh, blowing trumpets, uh, your mind goes, or at least if we, if we know the scripture very well, our mind will go automatically to the two silver trumpets that were given to the priests to blow. When the priesthood was appointed and the tabernacle set up, part of the furniture in the tabernacle consisted of two silver trumpets that the priests were to blow. Now, there is a difficulty because the word used in the Hebrew for trumpet here in Joel is not actually the same word as used for a trumpet in the book of Numbers. And uh, here, uh, the word is indicative of a, a ram's horn or an animal's horn or something to that effect, whereas in the book of Numbers, the two silver trumpets given to the priests were silver, uh, elongated, and not as able to make as many distinct noises. Now, normally that kind of thing would uh, upset us in trying to find the meaning of something if the word is different. But I don't think we should let it deflect us. And again, there's two reasons for that. First of all, the silver trumpets that were given to the priests belonged to Israel when they were on the march and when they could all numerically be convened around a tabernacle and when the people of God were localized in one place. In other words, when the trumpet was blown, the whole of the people could hear that trumpet blown. Now, you have an in excess of two million people, but when they are scattered out around the tabernacle as a central point, that is not at all impossible to hear the loud peal of a silver trumpet or sometimes two silver trumpets. But of course, by this stage, circumstances are completely different. The tabernacle itself has gone. What happened to it is, a, is an interesting study, but it, it's not for now. The tabernacle is gone. And the people of God are no longer localized in one place, at least in that way. They are scattered in the providence and the allotment of God throughout the promised land. And the peal of one trumpet isn't able to reach the whole of the people. It's possible that the silver trumpets are no longer available, as well as being no longer useful. And the second thing is that these trumpets here and this is the critical thing, are performing exactly the same function as the two silver trumpets were performing earlier in Israel's history. Exactly the same function. When we read there in Numbers 10 that the two trumpets were to be blown, 
there were four functions. First of all, they were to sound an alarm. Second, they were to call the congregation to assemble together. Then they were to announce the special feasts of the Lord. And last of all, they were to direct the movement of the camp. So depending on the trumpet that was blown, uh, those camps, those uh, tribes that were on the one side of the tabernacle would move first, and then those on the south side, those on the north first, then those on the south side, they would move. So it was to direct the movement of the camps. Now there's a lot of spiritual uh, good to be derived from that, to sound an alarm, to call the congregation to assemble, to announce the feasts, and to direct the movement of the camp. But of course, the critical thing uh, is that to know what to do, you had to recognize the trumpet. Uh, were the two trumpets blowing, or was it just one? That was the first thing. What kind of sound were the trumpets making? What was the pattern of the sound? Um, all these things helped you to respond properly to the trumpet. Now, let's look at the first trumpet, and we're just going to confine ourselves this morning to the first trumpet. Blow it, Joel says. Blow the trumpet in Zion and sound an alarm in my holy mountain. So this trumpet was to be blown in Mount Zion, that's in the church of God, and all the land was to hear it because all the inhabitants of the land would tremble. Now, Joel himself is not the one to blow it. He's a prophet. But he is coming to tell the priests their duty, and their duty is to blow the trumpet for God. Now, I don't think at all that this trumpet is a literal trumpet. I think it is meant to be understood in a figurative way. Uh, there isn't a trumpet in Zion that would, that would reach all corners of the promised land. What the, what the prophet is doing, or what God is saying through the prophet here, is let something sound out. Let, let a noise be made by the priests that will reach all the inhabitants of the land, and when they hear it, they will tremble. So what notice the trumpet to make? Well, it's an alarm. It's an alarm. Sound the alarm in my holy mountain. What alarm is it that the trumpets were to draw attention to? Well, it was the presence of an enemy. An enemy coming or an enemy in the camp. So the trumpet was the priest signal for the people to prepare themselves for battle. Now, of course, that raises the question, who is the enemy here in the, in, the, in the book of Joel? Who is the enemy? Now, you'd say on the face of it, it's obviously the locusts. And the fact is that they are described as an enemy. I drew attention to that. They're, sorry, they're described as an army. I drew attention to that either last time or the time before. For example, here in chapter 2 and in verse 4, their appearance, like the appearance of horses, 
They run like swift steeds, and with a noise like the chariots, they leap over mountaintops, and so on. We're told at the end of verse 5 that they are like a strong people set in battle array. At the end of verse 7, each one marches in formation. They do not break ranks and they do not push one another. Everyone marches in his own column and so on. So the army, obviously, is the army of locusts. But that only raises another question, or it pushes the question back. What uses a trumpet for that? In why are the priests to blow a trumpet from God, for God, from Mount Zion, from the church itself, that reaches to every part of the land to warn them about the locusts? The locusts are already here. Joel is not sent before the plague of the locust comes. He is sent after four successive waves of locusts have already come. And, and he has been sent to interpret the locusts. And he has been sent to call the people to respond. So what's the point of telling the priests to blow a trumpet? Unless, of course, the locusts are not the real enemy. After all, who is the commander-in-chief? If, if, if you were invaded by millions of soldiers, you'd like to know who sent them. You'd like to know who the commander was. Who's the ultimate authority? Who do you have to negotiate with? Who do you get a peace treaty with if they look as as though they're going to finish you off as a nation? Well, the answer is in verse 11. The Lord gives voice before his army. His camp is very great. Strong is the one who executes his word. The day of the Lord is great and very terrible, and who can endure it? The locusts are God's army. But the problem with that is that it has a very unfortunate implication. If if the locusts are their enemy, and if the Lord is at the head of the army, then he himself has become their enemy. Now, most of the evangelical world will throw up their hands in horror and say, oh, you can't speak of God ever as being the enemy of his people. But sometimes, friends, it's true. I don't mean by that that he is permanently against them. Not at all. But there are times when God becomes an aggressor and he becomes an assailant and he puts himself in the place of an enemy, fights with you. He really does fight with you in order to bring you to where you ought to be. Uh, Think of the best-known example of this. The Lord uh, loved Jacob, very much so. But then we read that the Lord had a controversy with Jacob. He had a controversy with him. And the controversy was so great that he came to him in the night. Very often God's visitations of this kind are in the night. He came in the night and he wrestled with him. Now, Jacob was not the aggressor, or he was not the assailant, let's say. Jacob was minding his own business by the brook Jabok when this mysterious figure disappeared and appeared and began the wrestling. 
Jacob didn't begin the wrestling. God began the wrestling. God was the assailant. And I know, I know very well that the incident ended up in a blessing to Jacob. I will not let you go, he said, unless you bless me. That's very true. But that blessing was through a blow on the hip. A blow on the hip that left Jacob limping until the day he died. And that is a microcosmic picture of what we have here. That happened in a night. That happened in a moment of time. Well, it was long enough in the experience, you know, because there wrestled a man with him until the breaking of the day. And there's no doubt that Jacob wasn't exhausted. Was exhausted. God wasn't exhausted. God wasn't exhausted. I suppose Jacob realized that when, after a long wrestling match, the Lord simply touched him and he was struck, he was struck in the thigh and crippled for life. Jacob was exhausted. And when I'm saying it's microcosmic, I mean that that process can be extended out for a period of time in life. It can be extended out for a period of months. And let me say it again, years, particularly in the night life of a nation. God's dealings with a nation sometimes encompass 20, 30 years, 40, 50, 100 years. You have to learn to take a, a long-term view of how God deals with a nation. That's particularly important with a nation under covenant like we are ourselves. And here the point of the alarm blown by the priests is to identify the Lord as the assailant. These four successive waves are his troops. This affliction that has ravaged the land and brought it just next to poverty is his chastisement. And the priests are to sound that alarm. In other words, the priests are to declare that plainly. Now this raises... I wouldn't call it a possibility. I would call it a probability. And that's that Judah herself is slow to recognize God's hand in this. And you say, well, how could Judah be slow to... Well, how slow are we to recognize God's hand in this? I mean, just as people can say, well, this is just a virus sent by God, just as everything else in a fallen world which is bad is sent by God. Well, that same kind of logic could easily have been used by the people of Judah. Well, it's a bad wave of locusts this year. We haven't seen one like this for a long, long time. In fact, if you consult the old men, there hasn't been a, an invasion of locusts quite like this. Well, I mean, it's no different. But the priests were to proclaim it. Because the people were not taking it to heart. I mean, that goes back to what I mentioned last week in connection with Calvin. I mean, Calvin's, Calvin made the point that the people were so slow. Even the teachers of the people, the priests, were so slow to recognize it that God had to send a prophet. He had to send a prophet to rouse the priests to understand and to realize what is happening. And the people do. So why are the people slow to recognize it? Well, there's two reasons. The first has to do perhaps with the people themselves. And that's that they might simply be so hard that they just don't recognize God's judgment. They're not looking for it. And 
they're not considering that this might really be it. Not giving it serious consideration. And I don't think this is the first time they attended God's house in connection with it. I mean, in chapter 1, you'll notice that in verse 13, um, well, God has told in verse 5, he's told the drunkards to weep and to wail. Um, In verse 11, he's told the farmers to be ashamed and the vine dressers to wail. And then in verse 13, he tells those who minister before the altar that they are to wail too. Now you'd say, well, that's just the same thing. The ministers here are just to bemoan the situation. But no, they're to gird themselves. They're to put on particular clothing and they're to lament. What clothing are they to put on? Well, midway through verse 13, they're to lie all night in sackcloth, you who minister to my God. So, so as well as simply mourning the situation, the priests are supposed to do something specific. They're supposed to humble themselves. Because, he says, the grain offering and the drink offering are being withheld from the house of your God. So, he says here, even in chapter 1, consecrate a fast, call a sacred assembly, gather the elders and the inhabitants of the land into the house of the Lord your God and cry out, to the Lord. Now, to some extent, that may have been done. Maybe there was a realization that, well, we need God in this situation. And I mean, a Christian population will generally say that, will they not? We, we need God's help. So you'll find perhaps maybe special services or something of that kind, or a special emphasis on prayer that God would remove the affliction, something to that effect. But it's interesting how Jeremiah speaks of a similar situation. And uh, he says this, or uh, God says this, They did not obey me or incline their ear, but they stiffened their neck. Therefore, God says to Jeremiah, now listen to this, Therefore, you shall speak all these words to them, but they will not obey you. You shall also call to them, obviously to rouse themselves and to deal with God. You will call to them, but they will not answer you. So, he says, you must say to them that this is a nation that does not obey the voice of the Lord, nor receive correction. So, it's not just that you're not doing right, but you won't accept any correction. Truth has perished, and it has been cut out or cut off from their mouth. A problem with the people. And it may be that the priests of the land or the ministers of the gospel are maybe saying and doing the right things, but the people are not responsive. Or then again, it may be the case that the ministers of the land are not saying and doing the right thing. And it's no wonder that the people are not responsive. Is there a problem with the priests? Are they taking it seriously? Are they understanding the situation themselves? Not really. If they were, what's Joel doing? I mean, if the priests were managing the situation, why the need for a prophet? Why the need for a prophet to tell the priest to get on with doing what he should be doing? 
Some of the priests may have called a fast. Some of them may have urged the people to seek the Lord. But was that enough? Put it specifically, were the priests urgent enough? Were they sounding an alarm? It's an alarming situation that we are experiencing this. Were they telling the people that? It's like a fight and a battle. The Lord who is meant to be on our side has become our adversary and our enemy. He has sent us an affliction because he has a controversy with us. Now, the fact of the matter is that the ministers of the Lord can be as sleepy as the people are. I, I mentioned to you some time ago now, in fact, I, was, I just realized that it was when we were still in the school, and I don't know how many of you were, were uh, here in the congregation when we were there. But when we studied Hezekiah's Reformation, you'll remember that the priests were not the first to respond to it. They were not the first. In fact, when it came to cleaning the house of God and reforming the nation, the people themselves were a bit more attentive. But when it came to the officers of the church, we're told that the Levites were quicker to respond than the priests. We're told that they were more diligent in sanctifying themselves than the priests. And what a shame that is. What a shame that those from whom people should seek the word of the Lord and should seek knowledge, not the Levites particularly, but the priests, what a shame that they were the last to move. What a shame that they weren't the first to put their hand to the plow when it meant doing the work of reformation in the land. What a shame. What a shame. And is it not a shame for ourselves too? Because normally the way the church is structured, if the ministers don't sound the alarm, how will the people hear it? And we can say as much as we like and as much as may be true about our individual responsibility to God, our individual responsibility to read the Bible and to recognize what the Spirit of the Lord is saying. All that is true, but can't obscure the fact that God has appointed teachers, pastors, and ministers to tell, to expound, and to speak on his behalf. So is it any wonder if the people haven't a clue God's in the midst of this when the ministers themselves can't bring themselves to say it? Is it not Paul who takes the, uh, the teaching about the two trumpets from Numbers 10? Paul takes that teaching and he applies it to the Corinthians. And he says to them in chapter 14 of 1 Corinthians, if the trumpet gives an uncertain sound, who will prepare himself for battle? So he's using the alarm sound of the trumpet. The alarm that called the congregation to put on their armor, he says, if it gives an uncertain sound, who's going to prepare themselves for battle? They can hear the trumpet, but they can't tell. Is that, is that an advance? Is that a get up? Is that move to the north? Is it, is it move to the south? What's it saying? They're making a noise, but what are they saying? And if a minister cannot say that the Lord is chastising the nation, how, how on earth will we deal with it properly? It's sad to say too many don't. And, and I know that now to be the case. I know that the majority, I'm not talking about our own denomination, 
but I'm talking about the church. I'm talking about the Reformed church. And as I listen to what's being said and read what's being said, too many just won't say that it's a chastisement in case it's like the Tower of Siloam falling on people and killing 18 people. That's why our national leaders have learned nothing in the pandemic. Not a thing. Not a thing. The Savior is the vaccine, and there is still no word about God. Not a word since March. Church leaders, silent too. They're happy to mention God and happy to mention that we need to pray that God would take this away so that we can be happy again. But no alarm. No alarm. It's not alarming. Whereas Joel says, blow that trumpet in Zion. Sound an alarm in my holy mountain. There was an old book, An Alarm to the Unconverted. Because your situation as an unconverted person today is alarming. Your situation, even under God's chastisement as a Christian, is alarming. Our situation nationally is alarming. It's not a problem to be considered in an armchair. None of these situations are. And it's, it's certainly my call and the call of every preacher in the land to make sure that you leave this house sometimes alarmed. Not simply edified or even challenged, but alarmed. Alarmed because there are so many serious things to be spoken about particularly hell itself, and your final destination as an impenitent sinner, which is the agony and torment of a lost eternity. It's an alarming situation. And the Lord is angry with our nation. Do you understand that? He's not just looking at it and shaking his head. He is angry. He's angry. And he's angry with his church. He's weary, too, with an apostatizing nation and an apostatizing church, and apostatizing ministries. Reformed ministers, so-called, who will sit and watch television between a morning and evening service on the Sabbath. Where are we? Where are we? When that is so, it's no wonder that they cannot see the judgment of God upon the nation. How could they? If you can sit and watch television, watch entertainment programs and sports between morning and evening service on the Sabbath, how on earth can you tell the people whether we are under God's chastisement or not? Just how? How? I mean, Jeremiah says uh, the stork in in the heavens knows her appointed times, the turtle dove, the swift, and the swallow. They all observe the time of their coming. But my people do not know the judgment of the Lord. Now, there are quite a few commentators who take the word judgment there to mean the Lord's commandments, his judgments and his statutes. Now, that's, 
That's to miss the point of what the text is saying. Certainly, this same word is used for the Lord's judgments and his statutes, but but how is it used here? That's the question. You'll never get to what God's saying by simply focusing on one meaning of a word. He's not talking about his commandments and statutes. He's talking about his chastisements and visitations of his people here, because he simply says, the stork in the heavens knows her times. She recognizes when she's supposed to do certain things. The turtle dove, same, the swift, the same, the swallow, the same. But my people don't know the judgment of the Lord. It's obvious that the meaning there surely is that they can't discern the time that the Lord is judging. So it's not simply a call to the priests to wail because the drunkards were to wail too. It's a call to humble themselves and to urge each other to awaken to the calling and to the task. Just very briefly, there's a second reason for the alarm too. And it is very briefly. You'll notice that when this alarm is sounded in chapter 2, verse 1, this is in the middle of the um, plague, well, hopefully near the end of it. But who knows? There have been four successive waves. I suppose they didn't expect two, three, or four. But let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, he says, for the day of the Lord is coming. Now, here's the second mention of this day. It is at hand. And you'll notice the description of this this locust plague, another one, is, is um, is so much more... How, how could you say it? The, the word that comes to my mind is, is eschatological, but it's not a great word because it, it brings the end of the world before us. The, the pictures being brought before us are so much greater than what is actually happening in a locust devastation. Day of darkness, gloominess, clouds, thick darkness. A fire devours before them, verse 3, and so on. Verse 10, the earth quakes and the heavens tremble and the sun and the moon grow dark and the stars diminish their brightness. The Lord gives voice before his army for his camp is very great. What Joel is effectively saying to them here is, well, I suppose it's a couple of things. And and one is that the, the judgment that they're experiencing should remind them of the final judgment of God. In other words, every chastisement It's a picture of judgment, because it is a judgment. It's a picture of final judgment, too. And and that's why the the language darkens. Um, Ultimately, there is a day of reckoning, and uh, the Lord's army will come in the form of his own angels, um, and and they will divide us, and we shall all be judged. And there's no escape from the final judgment. And and that's why the alarm is so great. Now, the final day of the Lord, there, there is ultimately only one day of the Lord in the Bible. That's the day that follows the human day. Today is the day of the scoffer. It's, uh, it's the day of man. It's the day of sin. It's the day of the God of this world, and so on and so on. But when that day of the scoffer is finished, it's, it's, which is also, by the way, the day of God's long suffering, it's the day of God's long suffering. But when the day of the Lord comes, it brings all that to a close. 
And we have such terrible pictures of it or terrifying pictures of it in Revelation where people plead for the mountains and the hills to fall upon them and to hide themselves from the appearance of the countenance of Christ. What, what an alarming, an alarming thought that actually is. So Joel is saying, look, uh, this should remind you of that. Certainly there are special things in the Bible, special days that God has appointed to remind us of that. For example, the destruction of the world in Noah's day. That's a picture of the day of the Lord. A deluge by flood. Think of a, think of a destruction by fire. The destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah by fire is another special intervention by God which is meant to point us towards the final destruction by fire of the cosmos. The destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70, when the city was ravaged by the Romans, is another incident taken by Christ to be a picture of the final day of the Lord, the flood, the fire, and the destruction of Jerusalem. But as well as these major signposts, what Joel is effectively telling us here is that every single intervention by God of a punitive or chastising kind should bring our minds to that. And not only that, he says, but God could here and now increase the difficulty that you are in. He may to some extent, like he did with the Egyptians, take away a plague only to send another. Or he may for a while mitigate its effects and then ramp up the pressure again. After all, that's what Jeremiah um, actually says. I didn't take the reference uh, to this, but I think it's in the same chapter that I was in a, a moment ago. If you just bear with me. Yes, you shall speak these words to them, but they will not obey you. You shall call them, but they will not answer. So you shall say to them, this is a nation that does not obey the Lord's voice, neither does it receive correction. Therefore, he says, this is just a few verses later on, the days are coming when it will no more be called Tophet, or the valley of the son of Hinnom, but the valley of slaughter, because they will bury in Tophet until there is no room, and the corpses of this people will be food for the birds of the heaven and for the beasts of the earth, and I will cause to cease the voice of mirth and gladness from the cities of Judah and from the streets of Jerusalem. I will make to cease the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, for the land shall be desolate. Now, you'll notice both factors there. Tophet, the valley of Hinnom, was of course taken by Christ as a picture of the final judgment. Yes, that's true. But Jeremiah says, you will actually experience a situation here in Jerusalem where Tophet will be devouring the dead. That's how bad it will be. In other words, God doesn't just use chastisement or judgment as a picture of a final judgment to come, but there's a warning. The trumpet is saying, listen, if you don't respond, even in the here and now, then in the here and now, God will send something worse. Even as Jesus said to the man he healed, um, the one he told to pick up his mat and walk, and uh, when Jesus met him again, he said to him, sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon you. Um, we, we often focus on the, 
on the adulterous woman to whom Jesus said, go and sin no more. But what he says to the man is very interesting. He says, go and sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon you in this life as well as in the life to come. Now, that, that voice of the prophet here, I mean, the prophet here is speaking today, yes? That's the point of a Bible. This is, this is not a, an archaeological discovery. This is a living book from a living God to living souls. The prophet is telling me what to do. And the prophet is telling you what to do. Be alarmed. Alarmed. And ask God how exactly to respond personally and corporately to this situation. That takes us to what we'll see next time, God willing, which is the second trumpet being blown in verse 15, which consecrates a fast and calls a sacred assembly. Let's stand to pray. O Lord, our God, how uh, alarming the word often is, and yet how infrequently we are alarmed by it. We pray to take to heart the seriousness of the words that are spoken in the Scripture, the pleadings of the Lord Jesus Christ, his uh, tears as he wept over Jerusalem because They stoned the prophets and did not consider seriously their own latter end. And we pray that as ministers and people, we might take your voice to heart and have a renewed discovery of the call to our secret place and a discovery of the end of the sinner, of the urgency of the gospel message, because it is a choice to be made between life and death, and not just as we know it, but eternal life and eternal death as brought before us in Scripture. In the Saviour's name we pray these things. Amen. Now let's close um, reading in Psalm 19 in the... um, Psalm book, Psalm 19, and at verse 12. The writer of the psalm has just been speaking about the Word of God, how excellent it is from so many perspectives in verse 7 onwards. And it's more to be desired than gold in its inherent worth and better to be experienced than honey to the body. But they also provide a warning. In verse 11, moreover they, that's God's commandments or God's word, thy servant warn how he his life should frame. A great, a great reward provided is for them that keep the same. And all this makes the psalmist realize just um, as the light of God's word shines into the heart, how important the issues of life and death are. Who can his errors understand? O oh, cleanse thou me within from secret faults. 
And then he goes further than that. Thy servant also keep from all presumptuous sin. And do not suffer them. Do not allow them to have dominion over me. Then righteous and innocent I from much sin shall be. The words which from my mouth proceed, the thoughts sent from my heart accept, O Lord, for thou my strength and my redeemer art. We'll hear these last three verses to the tune, Ayrshire. to receive God's blessing. <clears throat> the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. <clears throat>